Oh, it's good to see you. I missed you last week. There was just absolutely no way to get here. Some of us could have gotten here, but we might have slipped on the ice and busted our head or whatever, you know. We didn't want to do that. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. We've got some visitors with us today, and we're glad you're here so too, and hope you have a great time worshiping with us. Fun to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Great to worship God, to know that he's here and that we get to join him and worship him as a fellowship of believers. And uh, man, I'm just glad. Only in Virginia could you have snow one Sunday and the sun and warm weather the next Sunday. And Isn't it wonderful? Isn't God awesome? I love the diversity of our Lord. Amen? This past summer we were on vacation and I saw a t-shirt in one of the gift shops and I started to buy it. Joyce kind of frowned when I showed it to her. It, it had a picture of a deer hunter taking aim on a, on a big buck. And then it had a caption underneath it said, if God didn't intend for us to hunt deer and eat them, he would have made broccoli more fun to shoot. <laughs> some of y'all will like that, some of you won't. Hunting and fishing have been a part of my life ever since I was a small child. I remember my dad started taking me into the woods hunting squirrels. Actually, he was just keeping me out of trouble doing other things. He, uh, he took me, I think I was probably eight or nine years old when we went the first time. Uh, my grandmother was really my fishing buddy, my mother's mother, Granny Hall. Uh, she was an amazing lady. She had an old Nash. Y'all know what a Nash looks like? Some of you older folks remember Nashes. Two-tone, turquoise and white. And we would roll the passenger side window down just enough to get the cane poles in. We'd stuff them in the, on that side. Then I'd crawl across the seat and find my place. And we put five-gallon buckets in the, in the trunk and our one-gallon can of fish bait, some crickets and cantaba worms and Away we'd go. Granny used to dip bitter dental snuff. Do y'all you know, you know what I'm talking about? The, the red or the yellow can with the rooster on it? Some of you are confessing. She would dip that stuff, and every time she put fresh bait on her hook, she would always spit on it. She swore up and down it made the fish bite better. She never convinced me enough that I wanted to take up dipping, though. <laughs> she did teach me to take a, a catawba worm and pinch the head off, take a stick and push it inside out so that the gooey stuff's on the outside, and then you hook it on your hook. Now, fish did seem to bite that a little bit better. We caught fish when nobody else caught fish. We could fish in the ditch and catch fish. We always brought fish home. She loved to fish and she taught me to love to fish. And obviously many of you know that I, I still love to fish to this day. I, I love to kayak fish. I like to fish in the winter when it's good and cold, at night when it's nice and calm. And, and I like to fish when the striped bass are biting well. It was a terrible season this year. I don't know where the fish went, but there's always next year. Amen? 
I don't know why we're doing this. But anyway, <laughs> there's nothing like catching a big old striper when you're in a kayak and just let him pull you around like, you know, like a horse pulling a cart. A lot of fun. If you never tried it, you ought to try it. Um, a lot of fun. I, I love to fish. Don't get to hunt much anymore, but uh, still love to fish. I like to fish because I can turn them loose. When you shoot them, you got to take them home and eat them. But when you catch them, you can, you can turn them loose and they can swim away. Anyway, some of you, I'm, I'm sure, know that the Lord's disciples were fishermen. In, in this area, we would call them watermen, uh, commercial fishermen, uh, people who make their living by fishing. In Matthew chapter 4, there's uh, the story of how Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee one day. And he said it, it said he saw two brothers, Simon and also, also called Peter and Andrew, and they were fishing with a net. For they were commercial fishermen. And Jesus called out to them. I can just, just hear him when he says, Come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for men. And they left their nets at once, and they went with him. They were probably out in the water, had their nets strung out, and when Jesus called, they just walked to the shore and began to follow the Lord. It goes on and says, A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. They left everything. Their, their family, their way of making a living, they were fishermen, and uh, they, they worked hard to make a living, and now the Lord was calling them to a, a new work. Now, I grew up being my father's trolling motor. I was his sculler. And if you know how to scull a boat, you take a paddle and put it in a sculling notch and you do that figure eight and you make the boat move. Well, on some rare occasions, I remember when I was young, fishing at night, the paddle accidentally touched some of the brim that were in the water in the lily pads and they would jump. And occasionally... I had a few jump in the boat with me. You ever had a fish jump in the boat with you? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's pretty rare when that happens. I've had people say, you ought to come go fish with me. They're literally jumping in a boat. Well, I've learned that that's usually an exaggeration. They're usually not biting quite as well as they say they are. At least they don't when I go with them. Fishing is hard work. You have to pursue the fish. You have to be committed to it. You have to be serious about it. You have to spend a lot of time hunting to find out where the fish are, learning what they like to bite and when they like to bite. But you know what? Finding love is a lot like fishing. It's hard work. You have to want to do it. You have to learn how to do it. And then you have to do it. Finding love in a lot of ways is like fishing. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, When you obey me, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. In verse 12, he says, I command you to love each other in the same way that I love you. And here is how to measure it. In other words, this is how you know how great your love is. He says the greatest love is shown when people lay down their lives for their friends. 
And he said, you're my friends if you obey me. Now, I don't know how many outdoors people we have in the room today, but if you like to hunt and fish, then you're in a position to be able to understand one of the most essential commands of Christianity, and that is the command to pursue love, to love other people, to love one another. Uh, yesterday in the wedding when Laura and, and Will were married, there was a portion or a section in that wedding where they read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's the love chapter chapter in the Bible. It's a place where biblical love is very well defined. And in that same area, you find that the Apostle Paul uses some language of, of an outdoorsman to tell us to put love into action. In fact, chapter 14, verse 1 says, let love be your highest goal. The New American Standard Version says to pursue love. Seek after it. Follow after it. You have to make an effort to love some one and some more than others. Some of us aren't as lovable as we think we are. Amen? It varies. In our world today, love is an easy word to use and to talk about and, and to just throw around, but it's uh, not as easy actually loving people the way that the Lord commands us to love them. I confess to you that Love is something I had to learn to do because I didn't know what love was. To really love someone God's way means you're willing to maintain an unconditional love or unconditional commitment to meet that person's need above your own. It means putting them first. It means doing without so that they have. It means protecting them even when you put yourself in harm's way. That's exactly what Jesus did. He did it for us. He's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. In John chapter uh, three, First John chapter three, verse sixteen, he writes, "We know what real love is," and and I like the fact that he used those two words, real love. There's a lot of stuff that people call love that's not love. Real love is this. He said, we know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us. He went to the cross with us in mind. He put us first. He did for us what we could not do. He died for us so that we could live. He met our needs before he met his own. And it says, and so we also ought to give up our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. When you read the scripture, learning about Jesus' life, and especially that last couple of weeks, the Bible says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and he made his way to the cross. He was focused on the task at hand, doing what God had put him here to do. His was a mission of love. He made the decision being fully committed to love us by remaining committed to meet our physical and our spiritual needs. And you know, that, that's not always easy. It wasn't easy for him. Going to the cross was not an easy path. What's interesting when you read scripture is how people treated him or how they responded to him with all that he did for them. There were some that 
accepted his love and they were grateful and they appreciated it and they, they turned toward him and they followed him. But there were a great many others that Jesus pursued that fought against him and literally rejected him. If you remember, they arrested him. They unjustly tried him. They beat him. They spit upon him. They slapped him. They mocked him. Uh, they ignored him. Um, they sought to kill him and eventually they did. But through it all, Jesus continued to be faithful to the Father above. Zeke Pfeiffer wrote these words. He says, the work of loving people, even his enemies, was hard, challenging work, but Jesus stuck to it. He didn't quit. He pursued people as long as he had life to do so. He really loved his enemies. You know, loving people is easier when they're clean, when they smell good, when they're kind, when they do things for you that are nice, when they give you what you want. That's when it's easy to love people, right? But not everybody you encounter is going to be that way. In fact, we're not always that way, are we? We tend to be self-centered, greedy, moody people. And that's where a lot of the problem comes in. You know, there's an old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Well, birds of a feather can also cause conflict. Sometimes it's because we're too much alike and sometimes it's because we all want the same thing. Have you ever noticed the seagull phenomenon at Hardee's? Y'all ever notice that? I've watched the seagulls up there try to kill each other over a cold french fry. <laughs> they all want it. You just let one of them grab a french fry and fly off and there'll be five following him frantically trying to take it away from him. Why? Because they all want that one french fry. And so there's conflict. It's sad, but sometimes we're like seagulls. Amen? We are. Zeke Piper goes on to write these words. He says, the conflict or this conflict makes us want to take the easy path, protecting self and focusing on what others can do for us in order to make our lives better. When we take the easy path and someone becomes difficult, we tend to pull away if our priority is to see what other people can do for us. When they stop doing, we stop caring. That's the easy path. And Jesus didn't take it. Jesus was always pursuing the souls of lost men and women. He was like a spiritual predator, hunting for opportunities to love people who were unlovable that lived around him. He was always doing that. Uh, think about what Jesus did for Judas. Just hours before that man betrayed him with an empty kiss, what did Jesus do? He treated him with love by washing his feet. And how about the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross? What did he do? He prayed for them and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And how about Saul? the man who sought to imprison Christians and even had some of them put to death. 
What did he do for Saul? He forgave him and then he called him into ministry. He loved him. Folks, Jesus never took the easy path. He certainly didn't just love people who loved him. He loved those who hated him. He loved those who hurt him. And you know, that's the kind of person that the Apostle Paul was. He wanted to be like his Lord. Last week we started, two weeks ago, we started looking at how Paul made his love for the church visible, how he demonstrated that love. And uh, we're going to pick up and look back at that again. We saw, first of all, that Paul demonstrated his love through the words of encouragement. Paul was all about making disciples. He, He wasn't just about making Christians. It was about making disciples. He was great at leading people to the Lord, but his heart really was there to help them nurture, be nurtured and grow spiritually in the Lord. So he was a, he was a magnificent, awesome teacher of the word of God. He loved to teach the truths that God had implanted in his heart. We also saw that Paul loved the church through his sacrificial giving. Paul no doubt made a great many sacrifices in his own life. Think about it. Paul never married. We were having that discussion yesterday about whether Paul married or not. Some, somebody popped up and said, yeah, that thorn in his flesh was a wife. I said, no, it wasn't. (laughs) We don't know that. He never mentioned any marriage in his life. He had no home. He was always on the move. He, he probably had nothing but the clothes that were on his back and a tool bag that helped him to be able to build tents. Probably had some needles and some, some thread and some leather cutting tools. He sacrificed and he encouraged a lot of others to sacrifice along with him. That's what the special offering we've been talking about for the struggling believers in, in Jerusalem was all about. It was about giving sacrificially to help other people. We're going to pick up today in the third verse of chapter 20 and we're going to see that that his love for the church is also seen in his persistence. He was not a quitter. Look with me at verse 3. It says, along the way Paul encouraged the believers in all the towns that he passed through. Then he traveled down to Greece where he stayed there for three months. He was prepared to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life. So he decided to return through Macedonia. Paul spent about three months there in Acacia. Actually, he spent most of his time in Corinth and uh, Paul finally decided it was time to go back and resume his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, He planned to take a ship at the Corinthian seaport of Chinchuria and he was going to travel with the pilgrims that were going back to Palestine for the Passover. But Paul realized somehow somebody gave him a clue that there were some Jewish brothers that were going to kill him. That was a pretty common thing. Everywhere Paul went, there were always Jews wanting to kill him because he had converted. He had gone from Judaism to being a Christian and now he was preaching the gospel instead of preaching tradition. They were upset with him there in Corinth because of the shocking conversion of Crispus and Sothenes who were leaders of the the Jewish synagogue. They were upset that these men also converted. They didn't like to see their ranks depleting. They were also upset because they'd been humiliated before the pro-council of Galileo. And, And so there were people that were upset with him. 
They had a bone to pick with him, and it would have been very easy for them to assassinate Paul on a small ship that was packed to the brim with Jewish pilgrims. So they plotted against him, and when Paul found this plot out, it troubled his spirit because it was depriving him of a direct route back to Syria, which would take him right on into Jerusalem. So it was an aggravation. It was a frustrating moment. It was a stop sign, a traffic light for Paul. And Paul had to divert, and that troubled him. It would have been a very easy time for Paul just to say, what the heck, I'm done with ministry, I'm just going to go home. Paul could have thrown in the towel, but instead Paul was determined to continue his journey to Jerusalem. He was a persistent man. He refused to give up. He was a lot like blind Bartimaeus. I, I thought of him when I was reading this the other day, and we find that story in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus had been traveling with his disciples, and they found their way into Jericho. And after they'd been there a while, it says later, as Jesus and his disciples left town, there was a great crowd of people following him. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road as Jesus was going by. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus from Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and those people around him said, be quiet, hush, don't, don't bring up his name, don't, don't say anything, don't bother him. But it says he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard the man, he stopped and he said, tell the man to come here. And the people around him, they quickly said, okay, cheer up. He's, he's wanting to talk to you. Get on over there, talk to him. And it says in verse 50 that Bartimaeus threw aside his coat. He jumped up and he ran to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, teacher, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go your way for your faith has healed you. And instantly the blind man could see and then he followed Jesus down the road. He, he had to be in his presence and then when he had his sight, you know, he, it would have been very easy for him now that he could see to just go running off in the crowd and go home and, and be excited about it. But it said he followed Jesus. He was persistent as well. Folks, Jesus rewards persistence. He did that for Bartimaeus. He gave him his sight Bartimaeus kept calling louder and louder, and Jesus chose to heal the man. And you know what? Jesus promises to do the same kind of things for us. He meets our needs. He takes care of us, especially when we don't give up. I'm sure many of you have continued to read Missy's blog occasionally. What a roller coaster. What a roller coaster. One day things have gone well, the next, and sometimes it's not even a day. Sometimes it's just a few hours, sometimes minutes where there's a glimmer of hope or there's a bright shining moment, but then right behind it, there, there are those times when she struggled. I read one this week that just said, I give up, I am done. But you know what? Right behind that, I heard her talking about the Lord and what the Lord was doing. Christians, we have those valley moments, don't we? We do. But that's not a time to throw in the towel. That's a time to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord. 
He never promised us we would not suffer. He never promised we we would never struggle. That's part of life. That's part of God shaping us and helping us to become who he wants us to be. Life was never intended for a Christian to be a bed of roses. Sometimes it's a cross. We need to stay focused on the Lord. Jesus said, if you stay joined to me and my word remains in you, you may ask any request you like and it will be granted. It is important that we pray in the will of the Lord. James said, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. You scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous for what others have and you can't possess it. So you fight and you quarrel to take it away. There's that seagull syndrome. And yet, the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't always get it because your whole motive is wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. We don't like pain. We don't like struggle. We don't like suffer, suffering. We're, we're, we're that comfort generation. We want it quick and easy. Amen? That, that's our problem. We're all going to struggle, and my encouragement to you is whatever you're struggling with, don't give up. Don't give up. Choose to live by faith. And not by sight. Reach out to Jesus and and let him bless you. And when he blesses you, go be a blessing to somebody else. Never let go of Jesus. Be persistent. If you read the story and you understand what Paul was doing, when plan A didn't work for Paul, guess what? He pulled up plan B. Instead of taking a ship straight across to Syria, he retraced his steps back up through the north, through Macedonia and across the Aegean Sea to Asia Minor and then he went on down into Jerusalem. Yes, he didn't get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover, but he hoped to get there for Pentecost, which was 50 days later. He never gave up. He was going there to worship God. Look at who Paul had traveling with him. Look at his team. Some of them were part of the mission team, men that he was mentoring. Others were official representatives of their churches and and they were men that were carrying the love offering. In verse four, it says, several men were traveling with him. They were Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus and Aristarchus and Syncundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe and Timothy and Tychus and Trophimus and who were from the province of Asia. They went ahead and they waited for us at Troas. Um, As soon as the Passover season ended, we boarded a ship. And Luke's writing this. He said, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia. And five days later, we arrived in Troas and uh, where we stayed a week. Uh, the, The important thing here is that Paul was a very patient man. He was persistent. And uh, his persistence was a true mark of his love for the church. John MacArthur wrote these words, and I think they would do us good to to listen to them very carefully because, and I I think especially true even for our Christian fellowship, but also our homes. 
We need more love in our homes. Amen. We need more love in our in our in our families. We need more love in our church. John MacArthur says, love relentlessly, persistently pursues the good of others. That's what love is. Love is not selfish. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, I want to read what Paul writes in there in the love chapter about love. He says, love is patient. And love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. There's no list of past mistakes or failures. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Paul loved the church. You can also see that Paul loved the church by the way he made himself available to preach the word of God. What we're about to read is really the earliest recorded description of what a Christian worship service looked like. We're going to begin in verse 7. Before we do, I just want to point out a couple elements about the worship service. This first worship service that we see recorded in Scripture was on Sunday and not on Saturday because it celebrated the resurrection day of the Lord. It was also held in somebody's home because in that day there there was no formal worship places where people gathered until the first half of the third century. So they met in homes. It was also, uh, you'll note in there that they shared a common meal when they came together and they shared communion or the Lord's Supper. And there was a whole lot of preaching and teaching, probably more than any of us here in this room could digest. But that was the focal point. It'll blow you away when you take serious what we're about to read. Look with me at verse 4 or verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, we gathered to observe the Lord's Supper. And Paul was preaching. Now, we don't know what time this started. It could have been 11 o'clock, the traditional time when churches meet. Or it could have been harvest time, 9 or maybe 9.15 or 9.30. I was talking to Bob Christian last night. He said, don't think that being late for church is a harvest phenomenon alone. He said, I've been trying to go to a church in Okinawa. And he said, I find that they get there and some of them are still coming 30 or 40 minutes later after the first ones get there. It's common. But boy, you miss out on a lot of worship when you don't get there at nine o'clock. Amen? Hey, I knew you were on my side. Anyway, in verse eight, actually, let me go back. Paul was preaching And since he was leaving the next day, he talked until midnight, not 12 o'clock, midnight, not 12 o'clock at lunch, the middle of the day. He talked until midnight. The upstairs room where they met was lighted with many flickering lamps, little oil lamps. And Paul spoke on and on. And a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill became very drowsy. And finally he sank into a deep sleep and he fell three stories to his death below. I'm glad we don't have a balcony. (laughs) 
Paul went down and he bent over him and, and he took him up into his arms and he said, don't worry, he's alive. And then they all went back upstairs and they ate the Lord's Supper together. And look what it says. And Paul continued talking to them until dawn, daybreak. And then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was, ta- was taken home unhurt and everyone was greatly relieved. Rest assured that God knows how to turn tragedy into triumph, does he not? He did here. God healed this young man. I, I, I'll bet you one thing, God had their undivided attention after that, don't you think? I doubt very seriously anybody fell asleep after that. or he, I doubt they even looked at their watch. I wear one, but it doesn't mean anything. You don't even know that it works. <laughs> Actually, it does. This is a great watch. Brother Chuck gave it to me. Anyway, let me get back on my subject here. I had a friend, I got a friend named Gary Richardson that was a re- evangelist and he became a pastor and he's really an evangelist that pastors the church back when Gary Wayne was young all their family went to the same church and Gary Wayne was sitting in church one Sunday and his uncle was in front of him and his uncle was known for going to sleep in the middle of the pastor's sermon so sure enough pastor got preaching 10 minutes in the sermon his uncle fell sound asleep Gary Wayne leaned forward and he tapped his uncle on the shoulder and he says unk pastor wants you to pray and right in the middle of the pastor's sermon, his, his uncle stood up, bowed his head, and started praying loud and long. <laughs> and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And the preacher just backed up and stopped. And everybody was looking at uncle. And finally, he quit praying. And when he opened his eyes, everybody in the church was watching him. Uncle never went to sleep again after that. You can break them. (laughs) Paul's selfless love for the church could not have been any clearer. He was tirelessly available to the people that he loved. He preached his heart out. He gave them everything he had. He preached his final message to the Ephesian people. They would never hear him or see him again. And then it said that morning after he was done, he left them. And guess what he did? He walked 20 miles after preaching all night to get to the next place where he was going to share God's word. It says Paul went by land to Asos. That's a place about 20 miles from Ephesus or from Miletus. If you'll notice in verse 14, Paul also is seen... His love is seen in how he shepherded and how he had concerns as a shepherd for the church. In verse 14, it says, he joined us there and we sailed together to Mytilene. The next day, we passed the island of Kos. The following day, we crossed to the island of Samos. And a day later, we arrived in Miletus and Paul had decided against stopping in Ephesus or at Ephesus this time because he didn't want to spend further time in the province of Asia, he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, by the festival of Pentecost. Paul went right on by Ephesus, his boat did, and landed in Miletus. Miletus was 30 miles from Ephesus. And, and evidently from what we're reading here, the, the ship that Paul was on was scheduled to be in port for several days. 
Now you stop and think about that. You pull up, they stop, there's nothing to do. It would have been very easy for Paul just to kind of kick it in neutral and, and get a hammock and go rest and take it easy and recharge his batteries. And yet that was just not in Paul's vocabulary. Resting was something Paul didn't do. He was making every minute count for the Lord. In verse 17 it says, When we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church of Ephesus asking them to come, come down to meet with him. Paul wanted those pastors to come and, and have a meeting with him. Now, you got to ask yourself, why? Why in the world did Paul want to meet with them? Well, it was very obvious that the Ephesian church was a very important church for the work of Christ and the spreading of the gospel. It had a strategic point in that geographical area, and he wanted to make sure that they were well taken care of and well prepared to carry on the work of the Lord. You know, as I was thinking about what Paul was trying to do with them, I thought about us. Think about Harvest. I think Harvest Fellowship is just as important a church as was the church of Ephesus. We're in a very strategic place. God has blessed us to have an awesome place to, to be able to worship. Look at what God's blessed us with. Look at where we came from in a short period of time. 15 years is not that much. God has blessed us. And, you know, there used to be 9,000 people that drove down that road every day. I think that number's increased. More and more people drive by and more and more people are seeing what's going on here and they're getting excited about it. They're asking questions. They're welcoming conversations about the Lord when we tell them where we're from. God has blessed us and there's much for us to do and we don't need to waste the opportunity that God has given us. Amen? We need to make the most of it. We have an amazing opportunity to be able to impact our world for Christ. Paul loved this Ephesian church. He knew there had been a lot of persecution on it. He knew there was more persecution coming. Paul was, was not going to be with them forever. He'd spent three years with them. He had invested in them, and he had one more opportunity to give them a final word of encouragement, and he made the most of it. That's why he preached all that time with them. He loved them. He cared about them. It's obvious from our study that Paul had a great love for the church. He encouraged them. He was a giver. He was persistent. He was always available. He had a deep concern for them, and he loved them. And I believe that his love really sets a standard for all of us who are Christians as to how we should love the church. How much do you love the church? I ask that question all the time in my membership class. How much do we really love the church? Do we love it like Jesus did? What did Jesus do for the church? He died for it. Would we die for the church? Would we? Most Christians, when things get rough at church, they just go find another one. Am I right? Yeah. But if you really love the church, you're going to stay and try to make things right. And get it cleaned up and love the Lord and love each other. God wants and he expects us to love the church. question is, do we love it like Jesus did? Do we love it like Paul did? We've got a great church here to love. Again, I was talking to Bob Christian last night. He said, you know, I had 
I had a chance to be with Micah just a few weeks ago, Micah Custolo, and he said Micah was was feeling the way that I was feeling. He said, he said Micah was trying to find a, a church to worship in and a church family to belong to. And he says, I just can't find one. And Bob says, I'm having a hard time too. And Bob's words right out there was, it is hard to reproduce what we have here at Harvest. A love for each other. A love for the Lord. A love for the lost. But you know what? We, we need more people who love the Lord. We need more people who will pray for this church and God's blessings on this church. We need more people who will be encouragers. We need problem solvers, not problem makers. We're always looking for people who want to be involved in ministry, who are willing to serve one another. We, we need more people who are willing to join our faith teams. Right, Brother Bill? We need people who are willing to join our faith teams and go out on Monday night and, 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 and penetrate our community with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that there is a field white unto harvest around us. But we're not going to harvest it unless we go out and knock on the doors and love them in Jesus. Harvest has probably trained 100, 125, maybe 150 people in the 15 years through faith. On Monday nights, we have five, six, eight people. We need more. We need addresses of new people moving in. We need to know where the lost people are. We need to build that team so that we can reach our community. We got a lot of empty chairs need to be filled up. Amen? Amen. We do. Why did God bless us? He blessed us because he wants us to reach people. We need more tithers in this church. Not just givers, but tithers. People who will give God's way so that we can do the ministry that God's called us to do. There are a lot of things. We're going to have leadership tonight. There are a lot of things that we have scheduled to do and plan to do and want to do that we feel like the Lord has called us to do. But you know what we always look at? Every time we get ready to do something, do we have enough money? Every time, every time. And I'm sure that's the way you do it at the house. We're always driven that way. But the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has all that we need to do what he's called us to do. We just need to give it. We need people who pray. We need people who pray for our growth and the kingdom's growth. We need people who are willing to invite the unchurched from our community. There are a lot of people that are home today because nobody invited them to church. We need to invite them. What if everybody brought a friend next Sunday? We'd have about enough chairs. Wouldn't that be good? Amen? Gotten kind of quiet. Preachers done started preaching now. We need more people who will welcome people when they come. Melissa said that today. We need more greeters. You know, you know we need people standing on the road out there with, with the orange vest, with lights, waving them in. We do. And then we need people with smiling faces out front welcoming them when they come in. Do you know that a visitor makes up his mind whether he's coming back within the first six minutes on your campus? And it's all in how they're welcomed when they drive up. We need more greeters. We need more people who love the church and are willing to sacrifice for the, for the Lord to bring him glory and honor. I, I love this verse of scripture. 
And I'm going to end with it this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Paul writes, don't just pretend that you love others. Why? Because they, they figure it out. They know whether you really do or not. He said, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Stand on the side of the good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Serve him because you love it. Don't do what you do because nobody else will do it. Do it because you're passionate about it. Because you love God more than anything in the world. Because you love his church. This belongs to him, by the way. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. And we need to be good stewards of it. And we need to love. How do we love? Well, we accept his love first. And when we accept it, we need to learn how to share it. And that's my prayer for us at Harvest. I don't know where you're at in the process of loving. I know loving's hard to do. But God would have us to love each other. He would have us to love our mates. He would have us to love our children. He would have us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He would have us to love our neighbors those that are next to us, those that live across the street, those that we work with. And I know sometimes in our workplace, the people around us are hard to work with because sometimes they're not very godly. But I'm sure that there are days when we go into the office that we're not very godly either. The only way we're ever going to be who God wants us to be is we let him cover us with the love of Christ. And we need to be in Christ, loving him and loving others. Let's think about that as we pray. Pray with me. Father, we live in a world that has twisted the word love. We are bombarded in magazines and TV ads and TV programs and movies and encounters and billboards and everything around us, Lord, just tells us that love is something other than what it really is. Thank you that you made love really clear with what you did at the cross. The Apostle Paul wrote, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That has always been a verse, Lord, that has puzzled my heart and my mind. I understand it. I know what it means. I see the picture. I just don't understand why you love us that much. Why you loved us enough to send your only begotten son to the cross. I don't understand that. I haven't gotten there, Lord. I don't know that I can do that. Lord, I want to get there. I want to love you and love your people the way that you love me. Keep teaching me to do that. Keep teaching this church to do that. Help us, Lord, to walk in your ways and in your footsteps and love the world that we've been placed in. 
all the way to the cross. Lord, whatever's hindering us today from being able to do that, maybe it's selfish pride, maybe it's moodiness, maybe it's just a lack of decision to love. Whatever it might be, Lord, help us to think about changing our minds. Your word's very clear. You bless obedience and you tell us to love one another. It's just that simple. Help us to fall in love with you first. Lord, stir our hearts and help us to become the people you desire for us to be right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.